Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is January the 6th, 2022, i.e. it is Insurrection Day. Yeah, okay, whatever. Uh... I don't know why, but so I said Jan 6, I had to say that because of all the nonsense that's going around out there. We're not going to be talking about today because it's total bullshit, as anybody with an IQ over 88 understands. Uh, anybody with an IQ over 88, in fact, anyone with an IQ over about 84 understands that if they wish to. We're just going to throw that aside today. Anyway, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hear from our expert counsel today. And I've got some great folks lined up for you today. Leading off today, we have the Ron Paul Liberty highlights for the week. We're going to hear from uh, Dan McAdams. He's going to talk about Israel recording a huge surge in cases despite a very high vax rate. I'm going to give you some even more information that just came out today about that, how how ridiculous the contention that this thing actually works at this point even is. Uh, Dan will also talk about uh, President Marcon of France, who boasts that he's just pissing off the unvaccinated what he can. And he also even said that if you are not vaccinated and you live in France, you are no longer a citizen of France. That's incredibly dangerous. Dr. Ron Paul will finish up that segment talking about how we must regain the freedom to question and deal with each other in a voluntary way. And I completely agree. Moving on from there, Nicole Sauce will talk about canning. Yep, canning. We'll use jars for that, right? Well, what about bags? Can you can in bags? No, that's not a thing. Wait a minute. You ever go to the store and buy a little foil pouch full of tuna fish or something like that? Can we do that too? Well, maybe, sort of, kind of. Nicole will tell you about that. Nick Ferguson is going to talk about growing fodder in the tropics to feed livestock and let you know about his new plant sale coming up on Saturday. Amy Dingman will talk about colleges and trade schools and how uh, transcripts, not diplomas, work when it comes to applying for admission if you're a homeschooler. Ben Falk will talk about growing trees and plants with high water tables. And Doc Ken Berry is going to talk to us about zinc supplements. Most of those I'll have a little bit to say about. And then my segment today is going to be about a very common proverb saying, quote, whatever, in the world of libertarianism, anarchism, agorism, etc. Everything government has it is stolen. And everything it says is a lie. The first half, I don't think anybody struggles with. I think if you can you can agree or disagree that tax is theft, but I think when I say everything government has stolen, even if you disagree, you know what I'm saying. You go, okay, from your perspective, Jack, I get what you're saying, and that makes sense. If you believe that tax is theft, then everything that government has, it had to steal to get it. Fine. Disagree, agree to disagree, or agree. Doesn't matter. I get it. But when you say everything it says is a lie, Does that mean that every time a politician or bureaucrat says anything, it's a lie? It does and it doesn't. It doesn't mean the, sta the statement itself might not be factual. It is the perceived authority under which it is spoken that makes it a lie. That'll be my anchor segment today. With that, let's go ahead and get on into it. I do want to remind you up front right away today, though. Saturday morning, 10 a.m., Central Standard Time. If you want to come hang out with me, some of the coolest people you'll ever meet, be spoiled with food and drink like you can't even imagine, watch Anarchapoco stream live into my studios, right? And be there when I give my presentation streamed out to Anarchapoco and their folks. Then you need to be up 10 a.m. 
Saturday morning, Central Standard Time, you need to have the Telegram app installed with the TSP uh, Telegram channel on it. Because if you don't do that, you're probably not going to even have a chance at coming. We're only selling 20 tickets to this. They're $500 a piece, $250 deposit, $250 on arrival. Uh, it's good. The dates are going to be February 17th and 18th, but you can show up on the 16th to set up if you want to camp here. Or even if you get a hotel or something like that, you don't have to sit in your hotel all night alone. Come over, hang out, have a few drinks, meet some people. And we start the official festivities on Thursday a.m., It's going to be awesome. We have some cool surprises, but I don't think we've ever done an event this small. And what's great about that is if you get to come, you really get time with me and the other people. You get to leave knowing everybody that was here. And so the networking value of this alone is huge. And I defy anybody to go out and, and eat and drink the way we're going to take care of you for those two days for 500 bucks. You take everything else out of it and just do that, I defy you. I really do. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and dig on into it. Leading off with uh, the Ron Paul Liberty Report highlights for the week. Uh, unlike usual, instead of hearing from Dr. Paul first, we'll hear from him second. Uh, Dan McAdams has uh, two little segments in the beginning. Uh, Israel recording a huge surge of cases despite a high vax rate. And President Marcona France boasts that he's just pissing off the unvaxxed and Ron Paul on voluntarism. Israel records highest daily rise in COVID infections, and that's today. It's the biggest case rise they've ever had. They have 60,000 people uh, with uh, cases in Israel, despite despite being sh shot over and over and over. And in fact, here's a, a, a clip from that article, if you can do the next one, and then I'll toss it back, Dr. Paul. Nearly 4.3 million, that's about half of Israel's 9.4 million inhabitants, have received three shots. Three shots, nearly half, three shots on Tuesday. So they're three shots and they're not working, and they're getting out the fourth shot. The Prime Minister Bennett predicted a continued rise in cases, but he encouraged people to get vaccinated. And here's the quote, Dr. Paul. Okay, let's just set this up. Most One of the most vaccinated countries, most boosted countries, another round of boosters, and they had a record case load yesterday. And here's what the prime minister says. The good news is that the vaccines work. That's his quote. So all of this, and that's his conclusion, the good news is that the vaccines work. Francis Macron stuns as he declares the unvaxxed are not citizens. Now, 90% of the population is vaccinated. Uh, the, uh, the, the population is, you know, uh, so we're talking about a very small minority who, Fran who Macron has said are no longer citizens of France. And I don't want to belabor this point, Dr. Paul, because obviously there are parallels are different, but it's the same mentality. Because I went back and looked at the Nuremberg Laws of 1935, because it seems like if you can declare a class of people non-citizens, that's pretty dangerous. And let's put up that next clip, because this is from Wikipedia. It's just a basic search. The Nuremberg Laws, these were all passed by Parliament. The Nuremberg Laws... Now, if you are three-quarters Jewish, you belong to the Jewish race and community and are not approved to have Reich citizenship. Uh, if you're fully Jewish, you are also not approved to have Reich citizenship. Obviously, we are not doing anything to belittle uh, the historical situation of the Holocaust. But what we're saying, that same mentality of someone declaring a minority, particularly like we've said before, 
Jewish people were condemned in Germany because they were thought to be unclean. Now we could say unvaxxed. But to decitizenize, if that's a word, people for that is stunning. It, 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 utterly amazing. And he was pretty blunt about what he was doing. Uh, he used stronger words than I'm going to use. But he was purposely trying to anger these people. Yeah. He wanted to stir them to anger. I hope I do. I hope I can do it when somebody challenges him. He says that's what we should do because we should punish these people. Yeah. And of course, the ultimate punishment would he, they'd lose their citizenship. I couldn't believe. I thought somebody concocted those words, and he really hasn't backed down on no, that. No, no, well, not not that uh, he would have the authority to do that. I hope he doesn't have the authority. But they can write so many regulations and do so many things and have people lose their jobs and punish people that, uh, you know, what good is your citizenship if, if you have no protection anyway? And I want to just follow up a little bit about Aaron Rodgers on, on this quote that uh, if, if you can't challenge it, if you can't question it, it's propaganda. Well, it looks like we're really there because a lot of people can't do it and there's always the threat. And now I think we're in this battle. Is that the way it's going to be? And I've mentioned quite a few times on this program that my experience in medical school and residency and practicing medicine, we were always taught to question, you know, and uh, and I always so know a little bit about medical history. A lot of things were developed outside of the establishment. You, you didn't always have to have an NIH grant and you didn't have to have Fauci, uh, you know, uh, ordering what kind of vaccines to take. That private physicians in, in, in practice of medicine with their patients, uh, you know, provided an atmosphere where they were questioning things all the time. And I think in this day and age with the, with the, uh, uh, computers and with the internet, there's a lot more questioning, which you say, well, won't this be a problem? There'll be so many different bit, bits of advice on the internet. And confusing patients and the doctors and all, well, maybe a little bit, but it's not anything as dangerous as the government coming down and said, you are not a lot of question. If you even question it, you're going to lose your license and that can happen. So it's fighting for the cause of liberty and understanding that if you want to live in a free society, you have to put a little bit of effort into it because it's not complicated. Because if you reject the notion that you can't use force to force other people to do what you think they should do, uh, then it's a voluntary society. Believe me, that's a much better way to go than with authoritarianism. You know, I'm just going to say it. I think that globally... We have damn near Nazi Germany. And that doesn't mean all of it everywhere. What I mean by globally we have Nazi Germany is if you look at all the things Nazi Germany did, right up into the initial putting people into camps. Not, not, you know, when they started killing millions of people in the final solution. Not quite there yet. But right up to the point where you're not safe to be on the streets, we need to put you over here in this place with other people like you. And those camps, because it didn't happen overnight in Nazi Germany, guys. We didn't go from there's no one in the concentration camps to there's a million people and we're burning 30,000 a day overnight. It was incremental. So camps for the, 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 the non-compliant, the suspected ill, yeah, we, we have that. It's in Australia, at least, if not Canada as well. We have that. We have that. 
Censorship, we have that. Vaccine passports, we have that. The vaccine passport is really a health passport. Did you know? I can't remember how to say it, but if you check this out, you'll find out I'm not lying to you. I don't lie to you. Sometimes I'm wrong. I'm not wrong here. I've seen it. I've fact-checked it. I know it's true. In Nazi Germany, there was a document that people carried around, and the word on it literally said, health passport, check that shit out. We have, instead of book burnings, we have memory holing. Literally everything that the Nazi Germans did, we have pieces and parts throughout the world. And that's dangerous. And then when you have a president of a supposed modern democracy say, if you do not get a shot... You no longer are a citizen. That would infer exactly what, 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 what Dan McAdams said there. Then you don't have the protections of citizenship. As I said last week on this show, our government shouldn't be able to do anything to a non-citizen that it, can, that, it, that, it, that it can't do to a citizen. That's how our Constitution reads. They don't do it, but that's how it reads. We'll talk more about how you contracts constantly violated at the end of today's show. But when you have... A country that doesn't make that distinction. That's very clear and open about the fact that, hey, citizens are treated differently than non-citizens, period. As far as what government power over them is. You're creating a second class of people that do not qualify for the protections under the law, which in of itself is already illegitimate. Gee. Why don't we just, like, have all these people wear something on their clothing that identifies them so that they can be properly ostracized by society? I got an idea. You know what would show up from a distance? You could see it from really far away, all of you mastards and vaxtards, etc., so that you would know that that person doesn't qualify. How about a big yellow freaking star right on their chest? Why don't we do that? How far away do you think we are from that? You know, one of the big buzz, buzz phrases today, thanks to Joe Rogan and God bless him for it, having Dr. Malone on, is uh, mass formation psychosis, right? Mass formation psychosis. Do you know that's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany? Mass formation psychosis. This group of people is subhuman. This group of people is a threat to your very way of life. This group of people needs to be cleansed. You know, all the crap that, that, that German citizens said when, when Germany got liberated, we didn't know. We didn't know they were lying. They knew exactly. There's no way anybody didn't know. How did it happen? Mass formation psychosis. That's what this is. If you look around and you can't understand how the hell we got to where we are today, There's your answer in three words. People literally have psychosis, and it has happened collectively. And our inner, innate, primal need to conform with primate groups has caused it to spread like a virus. You, 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 and you can see this in a very simple conversation with somebody. They will talk to you and say, but down there in Texas, people are just dying left and right. You're like, no, they're not. No, you have record death numbers. No, we don't. Here's the numbers. 
And if you're going to measure deaths, let's measure it per thousand people. So what state did the most to block the spread? And most people that will take that stance will tell you New York. You say, okay, well, Texas, per thousand citizens, our death rate puts us at number 26 in the country. We have the 26, we're dead, I mean, that's about as dead center in 50 states as you're going to get. We are right in the middle. New York, who took the extreme version of this, is number six. Six versus 26. They have destroyed people's lives. They have destroyed their economy. They have violated the Constitution at every level. They are requiring papers to travel, which, my God, if somebody like Trump had done that, the very people promoting this would be losing their minds, justifiably, by the way. Justifiably, by the way. And what they got for it was way worse results. And they still don't care. That's not logical, it's not rational, and anybody that can like eat without a fork on their cork, without poking their eye out, can understand that. So when you give something that's, something that's clear, definitive, and easy to understand, and the other person refuses to accept it, it's way more than just perception bias. It is psychosis. And this is a very dangerous time. So let's be more proactive going forward with solutions. Let's talk about something that, you know, maybe you didn't know you could do. Preserving food by canning in bags. How the hell would somebody even do that? Let's hear from Nicole Sauce. Happy New Year, everybody. This is Nicole Sauce from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast with a question that came in on an Outback with Jack comment that we never got to. And I saw it fly in towards the end of a broadcast towards the end of last year, and it was time to wrap up, and I just noted it. And this is the question. How do you can in bags? What? Wait, can in bags? Is that a thing? Yeah, that's a thing. I loved it when I saw that question because a lot of people don't know about canning in bags, but it is something that a lot of people in the preservation community and the prepper community have been doing for about a decade now. And it has a name. It's called retort canning. You ever seen those Indian food packages at the store? You know, like a nice sog paneer or something that you can take home and squirt it out of a metallic-looking bag, and you heat it up, and you eat that, and it's kind of tasty? Yeah, that's that's a retort bag. That's called a retort bag, and it's, it's a metallized bag that will hold a seal in a high-temperature environment. And retort canning on the commercial level has been something that's been going on for a very long time. Of course, home canners, once vacuum chamber sealers became affordable, started doing their own experimentation with that as soon as they could because they thought, hey, sometimes I want to go on a backpack and I want to carry something really heavy. I don't know why you do that, but whatever, to each their own. I want a beef stew, and my beef stew is really hard to carry home canned in a jar, but hey, this retort bag would make that awesome. So... They started experimenting with retort canning. Retort bags are available for home canning. You can order them online. And here's how the process works. Step one, make your stuff. It's got to be stuff with liquid. Like you can't just shove a bunch of dry cherries in there or something, right? So make something that's like a beef stew. Good example to do. Then you chill it in your fridge. Then you seal it in the retort canning bag in your vacuum 
sealer. It, and it has to be the chamber vac that'll do that. Otherwise, you'll suck up the liquids into the seal. The seal won't hold. If the seal doesn't hold, you're going to be sad. Then you take this bag and you put it in your pressure canner and you process it with the times appropriate for whatever you are pressure canning. 70 minutes, 90 minutes, whatever it is, depending on the size. That's retort canning. Now, I think some of you might be right now hammering away at your keyboards, sending me in all caps, you're going to kill the world message. Retort canning is more controversial than the carry pressure canner, guys. And this is where I don't make a recommendation about whether to do it or not. But I will say make your own decision and look into the why of those emails. Because, yes, if you can incorrectly and it's a a low acid food that requires pressure canning, and you do it wrong and it doesn't get up to temperature, guess what? Our friend botulism can grow. And then if botulism grows and you eat it straight out of the bag without boiling it on the way out of the bag, you can get a neurotoxin that will make you very sad or dead. That's that's what you're facing anytime you home can. That being said, there are zero documented cases of somebody retort canning and then eating the stuff out of the the bag and then ending up dead. There are also zero reports that I have found or research papers or anything on the home canning scale on retort canning time. So people who do retort canning use the same processing times that they would use for a jar. And this is where you could make a big mistake. If you were to fill a bunch of bags with beef stew and layer them in like sardines in your canner, and then process them because they're touching each other and jars when they're in a canner have a little space because they're jars and that's how they fit in there. You could actually turn what was seven, or let's just say four quarts to make this easy, four quarts of stuff into a gallon. And the processing time for a gallon of beef stew is going to be very different than the processing time for a quart of beef stew. So, What retort canners do is they put their bags in in such a way that they're not touching each other and then press pressure process them as they would canned foods. So this is something that's fairly advanced in the canning world and it's new and doesn't have a lot of research behind it. And here's why I bring it up, because I've never done it. I am going to try to do some. I've been watching this field develop for about five years and just had never gotten around to doing it because I'm just pretty happy with my jars. And of course, I put a call into my favorite lab to find out what their opinion of it is. And their opinion is that they don't have an opinion because people make mistakes really easily. But I wanted to bring it up also, just so you know, this exists. Just so you know, it exists. And to find out if any of y'all who listen to this podcast are doing it. And if so, if you could share the feedback, because I think it's an exciting way you can go for being able to throw some some good stuff in your bug out bag so long as you're going to be able to boil it on the way out. Or for me, when I go on trips, I bring homemade food and I'm always worried about the jars clanking in the back of my car. They take up a lot of space. It'd be great to just throw some of those bags in there. So let me know what your experience with retort canning has been. Make it a great week. So what I'll add to this is what she alluded to at the very end here. This idea that canning in itself is dangerous due to botulism goes away if we take the food item 
and we boil it for more than 10 minutes. And what people will say when you tell them that is, well, Jack, you don't know shit. You don't know nothing about botulism. Botulism's an organism. It's not what's toxic. It's what botulism does that creates toxin. And if you, if, if you boil, you don't get hot enough to kill the botulism anyway. Yeah, but you do get hot enough if you boil for full boil for 10 minutes to boil off any of the botulinum toxins that would be in the, the, the item. And that's why, in spite of all the hysteria about botulism, the best practices when you're, when you're heating up something that's been canned in any way, even something that's high acid, best practices is usually still considered to, to cook it fully for 10 minutes. And let's be honest, if we've canned a thing... We're not going to overcook it. Now, I don't follow that best practice all the time. If I can salsa, you know, a high-acid salsa, I'm not worried about it. I understand that botulism can't live in there, but that's the general overall thesis that when you're canning foods that they should be brought to a simmer, to a boil and simmered for a full 10 minutes before they're consumed as a final check on everything. But I, what I find interesting, people are doing this. No one's ever gotten sick. No one's ever died. But everybody will still clamor hysteria. And people do the same thing with the carry canner that, that, that Nicole mentioned that I've been recommending for years. If pressure canning in a carry canner was going to kill somebody, somebody in my audience would be dead. I can look at the sales numbers and tell you that. It doesn't mean that there's zero risk in any form of canning or life. And I think we get, we get way too scared of things. And what are we doing? We're letting someone that doesn't know tell us how we should live. We'll save that thought for my anchor segment at the end. Let's talk now about homeschooling with Amy Dingman. And will, will the college, will the trade school, whatever, accept a homeschool high school diploma? Well, they don't even ask for a diploma. They ask for something called a transcript. Amy will tell you all about that. And I'll tell you a way that may work better for some of y'all, but not everybody. That's what I love about homeschool. We get to make our own decisions. Hey, TSPers, this is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast and website, and I am back with another answer to a question about homeschooling. This question comes from Jesse. Jesse wants to know, are you hearing about colleges or trade schools not accepting homeschool diplomas? My wife has always homeschooled our son and is entering high school in two years. We are currently in New Mexico. My wife wants to change over to an accredited curriculum from our current provider because she's heard some places don't accept homemade diplomas. Is this something you've heard of? Sending assignments in via the accredited model added a lot of stress to my wife when we tried it early on, so we've been grading everything ourselves ever since. I hope he goes into a trade to really contribute to society, but if he goes to college, I don't want any hurdles. I don't think it's that big of a deal, but don't want him to run into issues either. Please let me know what you advise people to do. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for your question, Jesse. First of all, a clarification before I get into my answer. Colleges generally ask for transcripts, not diplomas. And a transcript is a list of the classes you took and the grades you received in those classes. So I think that's an important distinction to make. The college is not generally going to ask for your diploma. So what we're really talking about here is transcripts. And you can find templates for how to make a homeschool transcript a million places online. So that's not an issue. As far as colleges not accepting homeschool transcripts, 
I've never heard of this happening. Literally never. I even asked in a couple homeschooling groups that I'm still a part of to see if I was off, if something had changed in the last couple of years, and I didn't get a single response that even hinted at colleges or trade schools having issues with homeschoolers attempting to enroll or not accepting a homeschool transcript based on the fact it's a homeschool transcript. In fact, I would say that in my experience, colleges and trade schools really love homeschoolers because homeschoolers tend to be self-directed and really driven in their education, and they tend to be more of these deep-dive kind of people into what they're learning rather than, yay, we got it done, let's put a check mark in that box. And colleges really love that. I think it's worth pointing out here, I have this gut feeling, and I think it's that as people start to question the validity or the necessity of college, I think colleges are going to just be happy to have people enrolling, regardless of where their transcript comes from. And again, I've never heard of anyone not having their homeschool transcript accepted, but let's be honest, I, I think the future of college as we know it is a little bit questionable. I had a friend whose son graduated from public school the same time as my oldest graduated from homeschooling, and she told me, I'm not worried about my kid getting into college because I think we're getting to the point where anyone who's willing to open their checkbook to the college is going to get in. So I thought that was interesting. She said that. And again, I have never heard of anybody not being accepted to college based on the fact they have a homeschool transcript, but I just thought that was an interesting point to add. I've had people say, After worrying so much about what their homeschool transcript looks like and what's on it and does it line up with how a public school transcript looks like, I've had people worry about that and then they they submit everything to the college and I've had them say they're pretty sure that the college didn't even look at the actual transcript. It was more of like, yep, all the paperwork is here, let's move on. So that's also interesting to point out. If your wife is really worried about this, I would have her maybe contact some potential colleges and flat out ask them if they have issues with homeschool applicants or homeschool transcripts or students coming in from a homeschool that wasn't using an accredited curriculum or model. And you might find that the person answering the phone says, a what? Sometimes we make these things a big deal and they're they're not as big of a deal on the other end. So just, just keep that in mind. And just to give you our experience, when I was making out transcripts for my boys, I was making out their high school transcripts. There's not that much space. I mean, it's a list of the classes you've taken and the grades that you gave them in those classes, right? So you got this tiny little space. So on my high school transcripts for my boys, I wrote things like Algebra 1 or English 1 or Auto Mechanics or Biology or Advanced Music Theory. Like, that's all that's on there. I was never asked what curriculum I used to teach those things. Not once. I was never asked. So... Take that as you will. What would I do in your situation? I think, I mean, and if it's your wife doing most of the homeschooling, this is, this is a thing for her, but you've, you've got to balance the fear of your kid not getting into the future school he wants to get into because of something you did or didn't do. You've got to balance that with the stress of believing that you've got to do something a certain way so your kid can potentially get into the future school he wants to. And what you decide to do about that is really about what kind of life you want to live for the next six years, if I'm doing the math right. Because you said he's got two years till high school. So six years. I mean, it's really important to plan for the future. We understand that in this community. It's important to plan for the future, but you also have to live now. So that's my two cents. I've never heard of anyone not being accepted to the school they wanted to go to 
because they had a homeschool transcript or because they didn't use a certain kind of curriculum. There you go. I hope that helps you and your wife. And just a note, if anyone is at that point of trying to figure out a high school transcript for their homeschooled kid and you're kind of on the struggle bus, especially if you're someone who is more of an unschooler, kind of like we were, and you're thinking, how in the world do I take all this crazy stuff that we did and turn it into this nice-looking line on an official transcript, please do not hesitate to reach out to me, amy at afarmishkindoflife.com, and I will absolutely help you with some ideas of how to do that. Also, check out my book about homeschooling, The Homeschool Highway, How to Navigate Your Way Without Getting Car Sick. And if you're looking for something new to stick in your ear, try my weekly podcast, The Farmer's Kind of Life Podcast, where I talk about things like homesteading and self-reliance and lifestyle design and a whole bunch of other stuff, too. I look forward to your questions about homeschooling and parenting and anything else you want my two cents about. So go ahead and send those to Jack so we can get those answered. Have a great day. So a couple quick additions on this. Number one, I know that she said, the, the, the person asking the question said the wife was stressed out when she had to send in uh, accredited work for grading. And I don't know why. Um, and if the child's not learning, that's a separate issue. But assuming it's just kind of the, the whole thing in the process, we use for our grandchildren Excellus Academy. It's with an A, Excellus Academy. And we use their Roger Billing Scholarship, which saves us like almost $200 a month each kid, which means the kid has to watch a video once a week. That's it. Watch a video, make a comment, you get a huge discount. And I think, I think tuition is like 80 bucks a student a month. And this all goes away if you use that program because they provide the transcript. And anybody looking at that transcript wouldn't know unless they knew the name of the institution specifically that it was anything other than a high school because it's an accredited school that happens to be located in the state of California. Um, so it's like going to school at home versus homeschooling except that it's exceptional education. The kids love it. They do really great. And it's not like you're doing a lot of work to submit. The, ch the children are taught, as they advance, how to submit their own work. They get feedback to make corrective action, to apply for extra credit, etc. They're like, literally, the system trains them on how to manage that themselves. And I would say that we are probably less stressed. I'd have to ask my wife to be sure, but I'm pretty sure she'd agree with me. That there's less stress using Excellus than trying to herd cats and manage the curriculum on our own, where other people love to unschool or partially unschool or whatever. So that's fine. And we, I consider us partial unschoolers because it doesn't take the children that long every day to do their work. Now, when they come back from a vacation or something, there's that, that typical thing of getting them back on, on, on track. But once they're on track, they're spending two hours a day. And we kind of say the rest of the day, do what you want, except you'll do something to learn. That's their unschool time. So they get both, and they get to be kids. So that's one option. But the other thing I'm going to say about the whole transcript, get into college, whatever, first of all, I think Amy's right, and I think Amy's friend's right, that we're fast approaching a place where college enrollments are down and down and down, and we have way more colleges than we ever needed because of the faucet of money from the government and the unrelenting marketing campaign of every child should go to college. Now, what I want to say that just should put this to death This should put this to death. The percentage of students who go to college out of high school in the United States of America is 66.2%. There are high schools that have averages as high as 95% of the students come out or go to college or some school of some sort. And there are some that are down in the 20s. You've got 
terrible school districts and pretty good school districts for what they're graded at, right? For what they're, for what they're judged at. But overall, 66.2% of our students in America that come out of public high schools go on to college immediately after school. Um, 67% of homeschoolers graduate college. They say that 67% of homeschoolers graduate from college successfully, which is 10% higher than public school students. So if you're a college, this is what you actually want. A student that enrolls to complete the program, stay there for the entire duration of the program, so you get more money. Got it? Right? So straight out of the gate, colleges are not completely stupid, and they can do math, and they know that there's a 10% advantage just per capita on a student coming out of a homeschool environment. So I think it's actually become an advantage. Now, here's the last thing. If you're getting into a competitive university, we're not talking about Joe Blow's community college or whatever, you're going to take either ACT, SAT, or both. Okay? That's going to be a way bigger factor on acceptance into a university when you start getting into competitive universities than your high school transcript. If you have a great high school transcript from a regular high school but your SATs are in the toilet, you ain't getting in. That's how that works. That's how, that's how it works. In fact, in a lot of state schools, like you know, uh, like UTA, where my, my son went, University of Texas, um, the, the better you did in school, the higher your SATs had to be to get in. Let me say that again. The better you did in school, the higher your SATs had to be to get admission. If you if your class rank was like 40, 40 you know you were in the like 40 percentile class rank, so you you were dumber than 60 percent of the kids in the school. You got a pretty low bogey for entry into the university. But if you were like at 90 percentile, you're in the top 10 percent. You had to have a much higher score to get in. So it's all crap. It's not worth worrying about. And I had a homeschooler on this show a few years ago. Who went to Harvard on a scholarship from a homeschool? If you're worried that Johnny or Susie's not going to get into Harvard or Princeton or Yale because you homeschool, let me tell you how that's going to work. If they are the type of person that can compete at that academic level and get into one of those institutions, it doesn't matter where they go to school, they're going to get in. If they are not, it doesn't matter where they go to school, they are not going to get in. And I'd severely question the value in sending them to such a place at this time in our society anyway. With that, let's go ahead and move on, and let's talk about growing food where you have high water tables. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Question about the um, high water table, although actually three feet isn't really that high. Um, we've grown all sorts of stuff on a much higher water table than that, although water tables usually fluctuate a lot. So three feet, you didn't say whether that's in your wet season or dry season. Um, that's not really too bad, honestly. Um, heavy clay is probably worse than three foot water at three feet. So um, um, imagine it's the heavy clay that's giving you the trouble. But either way, for both reasons, clay and high water table, I would suggest you plant on mounds. Um, I'm not really sure how that 
you know, the effects of mountains in that climate. I mean, that, that's, um, in Texas is a lot warmer. Oh no, you're in Ohio. I see. Uh, yeah, then I think that's a cold enough climate that it'll behave probably very similar to how it does for us in Vermont. The colder the climate, the more up on a mound, the better for most things. And the higher the water table and heavier the soil, the more on a mound a plant is, the better it does too, generally speaking. So we're able to grow basically anything on a mound, even a water table that gets to a foot with it, within a foot of the surf, of the surface or even less for some of the year. Um, so. Should be no issue if you just make mounds, swale mounds. Swales are easy way to get a mound because you have the material right there. You dig it, make a mound downhill or uphill. Um, you could also bring material in to make your mound, but that's a lot more work. So generally you kind of have a borrow pit, so to speak, an area right next to the mound that you're digging from. Small backhoe does it quick. It doesn't need to be a very severe mound, and I would make sure, I would urge you to keep your changes of slope very mellow for maintenance needs don't resist the urge to kind of have it be like a real serious pit in the mound very mellow uh subtle dig and fill is what you're after and plant right on top and um you know adding some compost will help but don't add sand to loosen up the clay that actually doesn't really work at all um Good luck. I'll just one quick add on with Ben there. I, I know there's people that listen to that that understand permaculture and swales. And swales are a ditch on contour that absorbs water, infiltrates it, downgrade into the ground, and they have the, the, the mound he's talking about placed on the downgrade side, which wicks water up into the mound to help mitigate irrigation requirements for trees. And you might listen to this and say, if I have a high water table, right? I have a high water table. The last thing I'm going to want to do is put swales in and then plant into swales and bring the water table even higher. Well, maybe. Because I've been to Ben's place, and what he's doing absolutely works in areas where they have a lot of problem, at least seasonally, with high water. Now, the reason it works, he's not putting in a two-and-a-half-kilometer swale that's freaking you know three meters wide and a meter deep. Right, that's about ten foot wide and, and 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 three foot deep in the center. Right, he's not doing that. The relatively short, swale-like terraces with mounts. That's more accurately how I would describe the systems he has like that, and they work beautifully because the swale's only going to fill so much, and it's going to discharge from its sills down to the next level, etc. And that's only going to happen during rain events. And you're only going to add so much to the water table through a system like that. And the mound is there all the time. You don't have to do swales. You can just do mounds. But you always want to do mounds on contour to prevent erosion. And you got to get the soil from somewhere. <laughs> so I do think maybe you should put some thought into how large a swale system is if you're dealing with a high water table. But there's another side to this as well, and that's the slow soak and spread. So swales don't just put more water into the ground. They also spread the water over a larger area and don't allow it to be concentrated. So what we do when we're doing swales or key line is we're going to move water from the valleys to the ridges. 
And even if you're looking at relatively flat land, if you were able to see the contours, there is a valley ridge type system everywhere, except maybe the salt flats, right? There is, there is elevation change. If you put a dog dish on the ground and start filling it up with a garden hose slowly and it overflows over one edge before the other, you don't have level across six inches, let alone 60 feet. So there is that concept that now we're actually not just raising the trees up, we're spreading the water so that we don't pool in some areas and be dry in others. So that works all together. So I thought I'd add that. Next up, Doc Barry on zinc. Hello, Jack Spearco and the TSP Crusaders. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Paul. Paul says, what dosage of zinc do you recommend as a daily supplement? I know you recommend zinc supplements for maintaining healthy testosterone levels in men and the potential benefit of zinc for the immune system. My research is showing that about 40 milligrams a day seems to be a common daily recommended upper dose limit, but a lot of the supplements I see online are 50 milligrams, some up to 100 milligrams. Uh, Paul, I think that most men need about 50 milligrams a day, and most women need about 30 milligrams a day to not only optimize their immune function, but also to keep their testosterone levels, both in men and women, optimal as well. And I, I would uh, I would counsel you that rather than just blindly taking a supplement, that you watch my YouTube video about zinc-rich foods and try to include as many of those foods in your diet each week as you can. The zinc that you get from real food is much more bioavailable and bioabsorbable than any zinc you'll ever get from a supplement, even the best supplements on the market. Zinc is vital for the proper function of hundreds of biochemical reactions in your body. It's very important that you get enough zinc, and it's very important that you try to get it from food if you can. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you guys next time. So I looked up uh, Dr. Ken's uh, video on zinc in foods, and it was very good. It's only about seven minutes long, and I linked to it from the show notes for you today. So if you get by to episode 3010, you look down in the resources, you'll be able to find that video that he was referencing. And I, I really, really think it'd be a, a, a great video for many of y'all to watch. And I completely agree with getting dietary zinc wherein as you can. If you're worried about zinc for immune-boosting support, I do think that supplemental zinc is never going to hurt you, and it might help you, and it's cheap. But there's one thing Ken left out here, and, and, and I, I don't know this from some you know genius vision or something. It was a doctor that wrote in to me when I started recommending zinc and quercetin uh, for uh, immune boosting against viruses, including COVID, uh, that said you're, you're missing something. If you're supplementing zinc regularly, zinc and copper compete in the gut for absorption. And you need to supplement copper. So when you're doing 50 units of zinc, you need two units of copper. And so I recommend a product called Solaray Zinc. It's a chelated zinc. It's it's a highly, highly absorbable form of zinc. And it comes with the two micrograms of copper per dose. I take one of those a day, and I take quercetin daily. And the thing about zinc is there's absorption, but then there's cellular infiltration. And those are different. Absorption means it goes in your blood. Being able to get inside the cells is where it's at when it comes to immune support, when it comes to mRNA and DNA replicating viruses and cancers, by the way. And this is all scientifically known. This is known science. 
You get zinc in the cells, you shut down replication of certain cancers, you shut down uh, replication of any mRNA-replicating virus and many other uh, DNA-replicating viruses. We know this. So I recommend that you take, especially this time of year, not only zinc, but a zinc copper and a quercetin, at least you know, one tablet of quercetin a day, because not only do you get the general benefits of zinc, but you get the zinc infiltration into the cells, because the quercetin is an ionophore for zinc, meaning it opens a pathway. The cell wall keeps the zinc out. It keeps lots of things out. It's doing its job. Cells have what's called a semi-permeable membrane. Things can get in and things can get out. And then there's transport mechanisms that allow things that normally wouldn't be able to get in or out to get in or out, right? So the transport mechanism for uh, metallic elements into the cells are our onophores. That's what science chose to call them for whatever reason. And uh, so I recommend you put those together. And that plus D3 minimum, especially in cold and flu season, and it ain't just COVID. Like I said last week when I talked about this, um, it's cold and flu season. I don't want to be any sicker than I have to. And if I get sick, I want to get well quickly. Right? It just makes my life better. So this is an easy immunosupport now on the other side of it. This is a beauty of what Ken's telling you about zinc-rich foods. If you're living on a proper human diet, which is going to be extremely carbohydrate-restrictive, and quite a bit of natural fats, right, like butter and beef fat and bacon fat and all the good stuff, and you're getting your zinc included in your diet through those types of foods and organ meats, etc., and again, I really recommend this video, you're going to get copper. This is, this is where supplement versus food, you come down to the food's always better if you can get it. Because it's almost impossible that you're going to eat a proper human diet and get enough zinc but not enough copper to compete with the zinc for the absorption. So Ken's dead on. I just think most people are not going to get enough zinc. And you're not going to end up with too much zinc by supplementing a tablet a day with a little bit of copper. Uh, and you're definitely going to be better off if you have quercetin or any other ionophore. Uh, green tea extract is a good ionophore, but then you got the caffeine, and you got, to me, it started to get a little bit jittery, so I dropped it. Let's take, uh, well, we're going to hear from me now. I'm, I'm the anchor segment today. We're going to talk about the concept that everything government has, it's stolen. However, we're really going to focus on the second part, and everything it says is a lie. So, What I want to talk to you guys about today is the saying, and I want to talk about really the second half of the saying. And again, this is a very common thing said among anarchists, voluntarists, agorists, etc., even libertarians. And that is that everything government has, it has stolen. And everything it says is a lie. What I want to talk to you about is the second part of that saying. I think that agree or disagree... When someone says everything the government has it is stolen, people understand the concept that taxation is theft. Now, again, people agree or disagree on that. There's people that think you know taxation and government's the greatest thing since sliced bread. They bring up roads and the schools and all of that stuff, and I, I I understand where you're coming from. I don't agree with you, just like you don't agree with me. But my point is, I think that when we say everything government has it is stolen, that people, even if they don't agree, they comprehend what you're saying. But I've had conversations with people recently about the second part. Everything it says is a lie. And these people say things like, well, don't 
governments sometimes tell us the truth, even if they don't mean to, or even if that's not what their intention is. Don't they sometimes speak the truth? Don't you know, if no, even if by accident isn't the broken clock right a couple times a day or what have you? Um, I've had one person say to me, Jack, you know, even you say that sources like CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or any of the mainstream media, often what you hear is the truth or part of the truth anyway. And so is it accurate to say that everything that government says is a lie? And the answer is it absolutely is. It absolutely is accurate. It's also accurate to state that Sometimes politicians and or bureaucrats make statements which are factual. So if 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 you know if the potato salad in chief Joe Biden came out today and said, I declare that the sky is blue, I'm not saying that it's a lie that the sky is blue. And that's not what this proverb, for lack of a better term, is saying either. It it doesn't mean that. And uh, you know, Happy Hobbit in the live stream is saying half truths are worse than a lie. I agree. Lies of omission could be some of the most terrible things. And, like, we've seen a lot of that with the COVID crap lately. Like, you just simply omit things, and that is almost as bad as just directly lying. Still not what I'm talking about. Still not what I'm talking about. What this saying is, is, is getting down to is that whenever government, and when I say government, I mean the state is a thing, is an entity, or any person who, in any elected office, politician, or appointed Uh, office, bureaucrat, makes a dictate or a claim or a statement as to what you should do or what you should believe or what you should obey, they do so under the cloak of the authority of the state. And therefore, it is a lie. So let me explain what I mean by that. Let's say that, to make it real simple and combine it with the theft, let's say I ran around your neighborhood. I went around your neighborhood and I took a garbage bag with me. And I did a good thing. I picked up garbage all over your neighborhood. And, and, and your neighborhood kind of had a garbage problem. It wasn't like a dump, but there's cans and bottles and stuff because maybe you have bad neighbors. Maybe you have people that drive through the neighborhood and whip things out. Maybe law enforcement doesn't, you know, police littering in your area. Whatever reason, you have a bit of a litter problem and no one's been motivated enough to pick up the garbage. So I take initiative, I walk through the neighborhood, nobody has a problem with this, I grab some hefty sacks, get my pickup truck, and I load the truck up with garbage. And then I go door to door to all the neighbors in your neighborhood. And I say, hey, I would like to do a thing. I would like to once every two weeks come through and pick up your garbage. And you're like, okay, go ahead. Well, no, I'm not going to come back unless you pay me. And they say, how much? And I'm like, well, if everybody in the neighborhood would give me $2 a month, I'll come every other week and pick the garbage up. That's actually not a bad deal. And you say, done. And I say, but we need everybody to do it. So if everybody doesn't do it, I have to charge you more. And you say, I don't like that. And you go, how much more? I'm like, well, I have to charge you the entire amount if nobody does it but you. But if you want me to do it and you sign this thing and at least 51% of the neighbors sign it, then we can tell all the neighbors that they have to contribute the two bucks a month toward picking up the garbage. And I go door to door to door to door to door. And I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty good presenter or whatever and I do fairly well. And before I even get, let's say, 70% done with this little project of mine, I've, I've done the math and I've got 51%. So when I come to your door, I don't go, 
hey, look, this is what I'm doing. Do you want to be part of it? I say, you know, 60% of the neighborhood has already agreed. There's some holdouts. But 60% have already agreed to this. Therefore, you have to start paying me. Here's my piece of paper. You have to start giving me $2 a month to pick garbage up in your neighborhood. And you're like, well, piss off. I pick up my own yard. That's all I'm worried about. Occasionally, maybe even I pick something up walking down the street if I see it. But this is not something I want. This is not a service I'm interested in. And I say, but you have to. We took a vote. And you lost. And now I have authority to collect this $2, this measly amount of money from you. Is that the truth? Do I have that right? I don't. And I think any logical person would say, Jack, the problem with what you're doing there is that you are assuming a power that you do not have. You do not have the power to force someone to buy from you. That's illegal, and it's immoral. I totally agree, and that's why I would never do that. Now, if I went to everybody in the neighborhood and said, hey, if everybody pitches in two bucks, I'll do it, and, and, and half the neighborhood or more says, we'll pitch in two bucks, and I say, okay, well, not everybody wants to do it. I need to raise my price to $350. Are you guys okay with that? And most of the people stick around and say, yeah, I'll do $350. And I say, okay, great. And then I take the money I have, and then the freeloaders get away with it. It just is what it is. You would prefer a nicer neighborhood. You think it's worth the price. That's how it works. And when you pay to make your house look good, you make your neighbor's house look better, even if they don't. When you go through a neighborhood and there's a lot of really nice-looking houses and some okay-looking houses, even the okay-looking houses have a better property value. It's just how the market works. That would be fine. But the minute I decide... That I can declare since the majority of people want what I'm going to do and want to force you to be part of it, I go from telling the truth to telling a lie. I am telling a story, right? I am making a claim based on an assertion of an authority I do not have. That's what your government does. Because there's no way we can vote government to have authority that we do not ourselves have. Putting it a different way. Let's say that I run a company. I'm the CEO of the company, and uh, yeah, it's a smaller company, so we don't have like a, a board of directors or whatever. I, I'm basically company dictator, and I have powers under the articles incorporation in that company that says these are the things that I can do. Literally anything that that agreement says that I can do, I can delegate. I can delegate it. I have an authority, hence it can be delegated. But if I decide just randomly that, you know what, I can delegate authority to people inside Apple Computer right now, the board of directors of Apple Computer is going to tell me to go screw, and they should. That's not pro or anti-Apple. That's just the first company that came to mind, right? Like, that's not a thing. It doesn't work that way. Everything government tells you. It tells you as an entity with authority over your life, which it does not legitimately have. If I can't come to your house and say, this is a nice house. Really nice. Really, really nice. So uh, I, you need to pay a tax on it to me. Because I walk your streets and I make sure nobody breaks in any of the houses around here. Or I walk around and pick up garbage or anything. If I, Because that's what that first thing would be. It would be, I know it doesn't seem like it. And it's so cheap, maybe you would just give me the $2, right? But 
It's exactly what it is. It's a property tax. You live here. You want it to be nice here. I'm willing to give you a service in return for keeping it nice. Now let's add to it. Let's say we go back to my thought experiment. And when I come to your house and say, you have to give me $2 a month now or $5 a month or whatever it is. And you say no. I show you a picture. That picture's my boys. Boys have shotguns and rifles and forty-fives and armored cars. And I say, you know, $2 is pretty cheap, bro. It's pretty cheap. You either give me that $2 or we're going to come here and we're going to take you and lock you in a room until you pay and then we'll let you out. Or we'll throw you out of your house and give it to somebody else. Now, we're getting into the tax Everything it has it is stolen. But the power, everything it dictates, everything it says, everything I'm telling you at that point is a lie. Doesn't mean I can't get away with it. If I walk into your house, point a gun to your head and say, give me your money, you may likely give me your money, especially if I got the drop on you. I've got the gun and I've got the distance and, and you don't have your gun on you. And there's no one else in the house to help you. And you believe that if you do not give me your wallet this moment, I'm going to pull the trigger. And I can say at that moment, you must give me your money. It's still a lie. It's an artificial form of authority. I'm using force and violence against you. But what if I change the terminology so it's a little bit more velvet-handed, you know, velvet, velvet-gloved fist, right? And I say, for the good of society, I need you to take half of the money out of your wallet and give it to me right now. And you need to do this because I have the authority to decide this. It's a lie. That's what this means, folks. When you hear that saying, and you're like, it just doesn't... I'm, I'm glad that some of you think that. It doesn't pass muster because it does show critical thought. It is absolutely the case that somebody may get on TV tomorrow that is some government bureaucrat or elected official and tell you, da, 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 and da, 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 and da are all factual. But the authority claimed behind it, the authority claimed behind it that says you must comply or this should be important in your life because I am telling you so, is false, and hence the entire thing is a lie because it is predicated on the belief system that this person rightly has authority to make decisions in your life. And those of you that are like, uh, but my social contract. For some of you, I don't think you understand what a contract is. A contract is an agreement between parties. And for a contract to be valid under our system of law and common law, Both parties have to be willing to engage in the contract. The contract must be voluntary. And the individuals entering the contract must be of age and sound mind to understand and agree to the contract. So if you go get a five-year-old to sign a contract without their parents' permission to do so, that, that contract is forcible and illegal. Right? Just how it works. I haven't signed any contracts that give these people authority in my life. None. Zero. So to me, anytime they speak to me 
or more importantly, on my behalf, about what the American people want, and lump me into that group of people, it's a lie. I hope that makes sense. With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the show. This is where I tell you generally every day that you can help support this show simply by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I usually have a new item of the day for you every day. Today, I don't have a new item of the day. I have the same item of the day I did yesterday. The Real Anthony Fauci. It's a book by Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, quite a few of you did pick it up yesterday. I was able to look at my sales report and see that. I thought about it this morning. And I decided I was going to go ahead and run this for the rest of the week, just to make a point. I told you yesterday that I've been doing this show for almost 14 years. It'll be 14 years in June. I've been doing T-SPAS for like five of those years, the last five years I've done this. I've recommended books for the entire period of time, the entire almost 14 years now. I have often said this is a book you might want to read. This is a book you should read. I have said things like that. I've never said until this book, this is a book that I think you need to read. It is not just that you need to read this book to know what has been done to you and the rest of the world in regards to the COVID pandemic, because that's the only word I got for it at this point. It is absolutely inherently evil. And that's not a word I use frequently. I think it's an overused word. I think there's a lot of incompetence that gets named as malevolence and then is invoked as evil. I do not have another word that accurately describes what has been done to the people of the world and what is responsible for the deaths of millions of people worldwide that did not have to die in this. Period. But it's not about that. The book's about that. But I want everybody in this audience to be able to look at things like we just did in my anchor segment and deconstruct them and understand when you're being lied to. And you're being lied to everywhere. Period. Every time, especially when the state invokes the cloak of science, I guarantee you, you're being lied to. And not just in the way I said today about the false authority. No, I mean direct lies. This is what states do. States have done this historically with religion. The founders of this country were not perfect men. They did a lot of shit I disagree with, but one thing they did was put a pretty good wall up between church and state. And a lot of times that wall was breached in violation of the contract. But they put that wall there. And is, is the country advanced as education rates advanced in this country, it became pretty useless to try to cloak the state under a veil of religion to get things done, to convince people of a thing, to fomate tribalism at the political level. It became useless. doesn't really work anymore. Courts smack it down and people don't fall for it. I know what we need, a new religion. Well, we'll just select the thing that was supposed to get rid of religion and turn it into religion and call it science. As I've said so many times, I know I sound like a, rec a broken record. Some of you too young even know what that means. Or skips over and over and over because of scratching it. <laughs> But science is not 
an authority. Science is an error-correcting process. And I really think if you ask the average American today, is science an authority, most would say yes. And I don't mean 51%. I mean like a significant majority of the average dodos would say science is an authority. Science cannot be an authority. The minute that you take the stance of being an authority and being definitive and saying this is the way things are and they cannot be questioned, you are no longer scientific. The entire scientific process was developed to get rid of that which was prevalent among the fascism between state and religion. Well, I'm king because the Pope said so. My rule is law because the Pope said so. Or the bishop said so. That, that, that was the whole thing. The earth is flat because these guys with pointy hats said so. You're blaspheming otherwise. Well, what do we have when somebody says, um, no, I, I think you've got that research wrong. Here's competing research, the other story, and then you're silenced. Basically, you're being silenced as a blasphemer. Science has become a religion. But the playbook's important. And I promise you, you read this book. And when you look at not just medicine, but everywhere government's doing this, you will dissect it almost immediately. You'll see it for what it is almost immediately. And it, this will be, you know, to kind of quote religion, it'll be like the scales coming off your eyes if you're not quite there yet. Because I know what many people are thinking in this world today. This is really bad what they've done with, with COVID. But it can't be like that with everything. I'm telling you it's like that with everything. I'll reverse. As bad as I knew pharma was, the reason I underestimated the impact of COVID has nothing to do with the virus itself because the virus is exactly what I said it was, and it's doing, while taking longer to get there, exactly what I said it would, burning itself out. Because that's what these things always do. But I never believed for a minute that even if Pfizer or Moderna or Merck or whatever was behind it, that the average doctor would refuse to use a valid treatment on a patient. Because I didn't know how bad things were, even though I knew how things were. COVID changed that for me. I was already there. This book gave me the play-by-play. -play. How it's actually done. I encourage you deeply Get a copy of it and read it. Some of you said you can't get it for like a month. I do want to point out you can get the Kindle one immediately. Okay, You can get the Kindle one like boom, and it's half the price. And the Audible you get instantly. And I found the Audible, like I said, playing at 1.2 speed instead of one, you know, the regular one speed. Narrator's a little slow for my taste. I know you, Some of y'all play me at one and a half, which I think is insane. I've listened to myself. It's not like freaking Mickey Mouse, but whatever. But you can do that with the Audible app. So uh, anyway... Even if you don't get that book, and I really believe you should, you can always help us out whenever you do your online shopping at T-Spaz. With that, I will be back tomorrow with Outback with Jack. It will be inside Jack's office, though, because it's going to be 24 degrees and high winds out there. And I don't want to be cold. And y'all don't want to hear me trying to talk with... 
So we'll be inside, but it will be at Outback with Jack show. We will be focused heavily on cryptocurrency tomorrow, which I'm sure many of you are interested in hearing about with the supposed crash of Bitcoin, which is not a crash, by the way, um, and some other things and some thoughts on how things are changing in the space. A lot of other material, too, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more, last little bits about the Anarcho Watch Party. And if you want to come to the Anarcho Pogo Watch Party, remember, Saturday morning, 10 a.m., the Watch Party's coming to town. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares.